Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I understand the Vikings won last night. Is that correct? They did. I was there. You were there. Huh? Was it a good game? Yes, it was a great game to attend. It was my first time attending a Vikings game at U.S. Bank Stadium. How did you like the stadium? Uh, it was great. I would definitely recommend that any football fan check it out. Uh, you hear a lot about how... Like, oh, the experience on the couch with my big screen is better, but right, like, right, right. That, <laughs> right. that's not the case at U.S. Bank Stadium. Like, as long as you're just willing to wait in line, like, at the concession stand at the bathroom, sure. like you would expect with a crowd of 60,000, like, sure. it's great. They have, and then on each end is a huge scoreboard the size of a basketball court. And you it, that you can watch it as it happens. Like it's just like watching the big screen at your house. Yeah, I have not been to U.S. Bank Stadium. I did recently take uh, the wife and kids to Target Field to see a Twins game that in, got a rain postponement. Um, but to your point, you know that whole argument of oh, it's better on my big screen. That day that we were there, there was literally no game, right? But it's the experience of going, the people, the atmosphere, the what have you. It's totally, and you're not going to get that on your TV. You no. have to physically be there in order to do that. The reason I bring it up, of course, is that we were not on the air last night as a result of the Vikings game, and so therefore did not get the opportunity to to reminisce and reflect upon and discuss the anniversary of 9/11. And so I want to start off the show with that this evening. This is closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com, and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream the program. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up with the podcasts right there in your iHeartRadio app and encourage you to do so. 651-989-5855 if you want to join the conversation tonight. Brad Omlin, our producer, who you just heard from, taking your calls and producing the show. So, you know, I did hear some commentary uh, in passing during my my day job yesterday um, regarding 9-11. And a lot of it, and maybe it was just the types of sources that I tend to to uh, patronage or patronize. Um, but the, the th- one of the themes seemed to be kind of this old fogey, get off my lawn, the kids don't remember these days type deal. You know, that, that we're not, in other words, we're not. We're not engaged in enough pomp and circumstance in order to commemorate the what took place in 2001 on 9/11. You know, are we forgetting? Are we losing sight of the importance of this event? No, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I was in fourth grade when it happened. Like, I remember that day pretty clearly. Uh, but I, I don't think that. I mean, it's been 16 years. Like. Right. I don't think we're ever going to like we still don't forget about Pearl Harbor like but the but like the way that we remember it has changed right just because we're not as connected to it right and us being in Minnesota like and watching on TV like unless you knew somebody in New York like you probably in real life mm-hmm. had very little connection to it sure but you at least remember like where you were but that and, and that's going to change but like I think it's it's at this point it's just like personal and how you were affected by it, especially like if you deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, right? Especially right. something like that, or you knew someone who was affected by uh, the terrorist attacks, either 
inconvenienced in New York that day yeah. or actually died in a plane crash. Yeah, there were a couple things that occurred to me as I was hearing that style of commentary. One is that, as you note, the the ways in which we commemorate things naturally and I think appropriately changes over time. You know, this notion of never forget doesn't mean, you know, keep the wound raw forever, right? Like you're, there, there is a, there's an appropriate degree to which both individually and as a culture, we ought to progress, we ought to grow, we ought to evolve with gained experience and distance from a particular incident. And just, you know, the nature of, of humanity is such that the further away you get from something, um, the more tempered, the more uh, sober is, is one word you could use, your your analysis and your remembrance of the incident is going to be. That said, of course, we should remember it and we should take the, the vital lessons from that day that uh, present themselves to be analyzed. You know, I'm interested in your experience of the, the kind of where were you type experience, because there's a little bit of a, I don't know if I'd call it a generation gap, but there's certainly some years between you and I. You know, you said you were in fourth grade. Yeah. Fourth grade. <laughs> I was 22, I think. Okay. And so, you know, a few years out of school, and uh, I was living, I, I literally slept through it. That's where I was. Wow. I literally slept through it. Because at the time, I was living in River Falls, and I was working a second shift job. And being the age that I was, I was taking full advantage of the fact that I got off at 10 and didn't have to be back to work until 2 the next day. Nice, I see. Which meant going to the bar, mm -hmm. <laughs> staying there till close, coming home, staying up for a couple more hours, and then sleeping till like noon, getting up and going to work. That's what I did on that Tuesday wow. morning. And so from my perspective, and I hate to admit that, but that's the truth, right? That's what happened. <laughs> I have not heard that perspective before. No, no, I don't. That's. I think that's an unusual perspective on the day. So I woke up to, to a world like, in flames, so to speak. You know, it was it was very surreal for me because when I got up, no, none of my roommates were home. You like I, woke up in the middle of a movie. Well, it it wasn't. It was it was a movie that I didn't realize was going on. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, I I woke up. I had no idea what was happening. I didn't turn on the radio or the television. I, none of my roommates were home, so there was nobody there to tell me what was oh. going on. So I got ready for work like normal, got into my car and started the commute, which I had like an hour commute to Minneapolis for my job. And as I'm driving, I'm noticing little things that are off, right? Like the, and, and I turn on the radio, and of course, they're talking about it, right? They're talking about the, the and at that time, they were calling it a bombing, right? Like the World Trade Center bombing. And so my mind immediately went to, the 1993 bombing and i was like oh this must be some sort of retrospective on the 1993 world trade center bombing well that's boring i'm going to change the channel and they were talking about the same thing <laughs> and i'm like well that's really weird i changed the channel again and they were talking about the same thing and i'm like what what's going on and it's and then i started looking up in the sky and i saw there were no plane not only no planes but you, we don't realize this no contrails right like no no indication whatsoever of air traffic really weird and so it slowly kind of started to hit me as to what had happened and that this was real and happening in real time and my immediate reaction was that this is the start of world war three that's what i thought i, I think thought, yeah everybody thought that i i thought this is this is like pearl harbor you know this is like archduke ferdinand this is the catalyzing event that is going to catapult us into 
World War Three, and we're all we're all going to fight in it, and, or either that or make bullets. You know, it's going to be a repeat of World War Two, basically, in terms of the rules that people are going to assume. Now, of course, that that prediction of a twenty-two-year-old in that particular moment turned out to be far from the truth. Sort of, I guess. I mean, you could argue it certainly looks different. It certainly looks different the reality of it than what I was expecting at that time. But I think w- one thing that certainly goes without saying, and this is where I think the difference between my experience being a little bit older and your experience being basically a child at the time that it happened is that I have an adult's memory of what the world was like before 9-11, which a lot of people who are adults today don't have that memory. And so, you know, that is a real divide. And our paradigm culturally was significantly different before 9-11 there there were a lot of assumptions it's kind of i think it's kind of analogous to you know when you watch a a movie or something about in the 1950s or the the, let's stay with the 1950s there's this sort of innocence that's portrayed you know you'll see characters talking about having trust in your government or trusting the police or or duck and cover that's what the government tells you to do like that type of trust to a degree that kind of trust it was more more cynical, but that kind of trust existed prior to 9-11 and informed, I think, a lot of the conspiracy theories that came out of that event. Because, you know, one of the assumptions and one of the questions I was asking in that moment was, how is this even possible? How is it possible that in the, you know, with with radar and missiles and F-16s, right? Like, how is it humanly possible that this happened? And I think there was this sense of invulnerability that we had prior to 9-11 that for for some people it was so ingrained that we we should be that invulnerable that they ended up jumping to down the whole conspiracy theory rabbit hole because well this can't possibly be true right the the government can't possibly be this inept you know there has to be some alternative explanation for for why this happened uh you know and and that said, there are real lessons that, of course, came out of of the incident in terms of you know how seriously we need to take. Well, and it's it's questionable as to the extent to which they've been learned. Um, the the lessons regarding with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The importance of ideology, recognizing an ideology as inherently violent, um, or, or lending itself at least to extreme violence, and, and being able to address it as such. Um, recognizing the the role that states play in sponsoring terrorism and addressing them as such, and these are things that you know, even though they were evident in the aftermath of nine eleven, I feel as though they have not yet been. These are lessons that have not been well learned. Um, you know, if you look at the and we've talked recently on the program about Trump's Afghanistan policy and the fact that we were fighting been fighting a war essentially for sixteen years. Uh, longer than we fought any uh, any previous conflict uh, with no end in sight and no real sort of long-term vision of where it's going to go, to my mind, clearly there's something wrong with that, right? Like there's obviously something that's not 
functioning properly if you can't readily identify. You know, when Jake Duesenberg was in the room, he was pressing me on, well, can you tell me what the mission is? Can you tell me who the enemy is? Can you tell me? And I can tell you what it should be, right? But I can't tell you what it, what it has been in the eyes of the federal government. And that's a problem. And I think that, that, that the reason why we haven't been able to get there is kind of a manifestation of the, the kind of ideological and cultural confusion that has, has been dominant within certainly the, the national security, I, I don't know if you'd call it sector or culture or whatever the case may be. There just seems to be, national security seems to be a field of American endeavor where there are basically two different ideas. One is what you might effectively characterize as neocon, and the other is the kind of wishy-washy, liberal, nobody-could-do-us-harm it, it's all our fault. And if we just treated people better, we'd be safe mentality. And what I would like to see and what I think is absent from the conversation is more of an, an Ayn Randian view of what is the objective threat and what do we have to do in the real world in order to neutralize that threat and minimize the, the potential for harm done to Americans. There, there's been some great work to that effect intellectually done by the Ayn Rand Institute. There was a piece by Yoron Brook. Uh, who is the president of that organization, and I believe Don Watkins, um, which you can Google, Yoran Brook, Don Watkins, 9-11, what have we learned, uh, that goes into detail regarding how our foreign policy ought to operate in, a, in an objective sense. And uh, I, on this anniversary, I hope that that's the direction that you will turn as the listener and that we'll get a policy going forward that better better addresses our objective needs for self-preservation and for the establishment and maintenance of the condition of liberty. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, com. Ebony Williams on her new book, Pretty Powerful, joins the show at 835. Justice and Drew, 6 to 9, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. There's a great piece, very provocative, over at 538.com entitled, Why Republicans Can't Govern. We're going to get into it here tonight shortly, but before we do, we're going to take your calls at 651-989-5855 on the anniversary of 9-11. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035-FM. Let's go to Greg in Blaine. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hey, do you got me? I do. What's up? Hello? Yep. How's it going? You're going to have to turn off your radio for me. Got it. Got it. Yep. How are we good now? Yep. All right. Cool. Thanks for taking my call. I just... I have a lesson that my mom taught me, and she was a part of that born in the 50s baby boomer mentality, and it's been instilled in me ever since. And she was writing a check once in the probably late 60s, early 70s, and she asked what date it was. And she told me that this lady had looked at her with this scowl, and she said, it is the 7th of December. Mm. And I ran, I ran into that yesterday when somebody asked me at my work we do a lot of signatures here and there right and um, she asked me well what date is it and i was like it's 9 11 it's 
September 11th. Like I, I was, it was preposterous to me that she didn't know. Right. And, uh, I'm, I'm about your age. You know, I, I remember the world before and, mm-hmm. uh, my mom had never lived through that. And I think there's just that difference there. Yep. That which, we're losing, and uh, which is an innocent not difference, losing, but, but we are getting further and further away from. Yeah, I mean, and it, and I I think it's important to note that it's an innocent difference. You can't expect people, and this is one of the things that that I, I really is a pet peeve of mine in the culture, where there's this expectation that everyone react emotionally in precisely the same way to anything that has ever happened. You know, for people for people who weren't there or who weren't old enough to experience it in the same way that we were they're not going to have the same emotional connection. It's not going to have the same resonance or priority in their thoughts that it does for us. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's why we have this thing called history, right? That's why we have the, the, the mechanism to, to pass the objective knowledge on so that it can be viewed in a, in an objective light. And so that lessons can be drawn from it. I appreciate your call, Greg. Thanks for calling. You betcha. So, I want to explore an idea here, and it comes out of this piece that I cited from 538, Why Republicans Can't Govern is the name of it. And I found this absolutely fascinating and very timely. It comes in the wake of President Donald Trump turning to Democrats to cut a deal on the debt ceiling and uh, related funding that, of course, flies in the face of what his party wanted and certainly his the party leadership and it has been perplexing to a lot of folks, particularly those within Washington, but also those such as myself uh, outside that bubble who are looking in and wondering what is the strategy here, what's going on, what is the point. And, and going back as far as November and January, the swearing in of not just the president, but his majorities in both the Senate and the House, there's been this frustrating i'll use that word frustrating sequence of legislative and policy failures or failure to act failure to get anything done that is just perplexing and the question is why why can't it get done and before we get into what 538 has to say about this i want to kind of cut to the chase and lead with part of what i think the issue is here and i say this and this is going to be provocative. This is going to be controversial. This is going to be something that might raise an eyebrow or provoke your ire. All right. So I have to preface it with this disclaimer so that you understand where it is that I'm coming from. I am a member of the grassroots. And I define that as, you know, in, in my case, I have not earned a single dime or a single copper penny as a result of doing anything political whatsoever. I've never been paid to do or say anything politically. I've only ever acted as a volunteer for what that's worth, right? I've been involved in the Tea Party. I was involved with it from the very beginning. I was the the chair of a statewide Tea Party organization called North Star Tea Party Patriots here in, in 2010 when the whole thing got started. I've written, blogged, podcast. Now I have a show, right? I'm coming at this question from the perspective of the grassroots. That's what you need to understand before I say what I'm about to say. Our problem, and, and I'm, I'm speaking, I'm putting my Republican hat on here for a second, right? Our problem as the Republican Party is not 
the establishment. It's not. It's not the people who are elected to leadership. It's not the people who are elected to office. Our problem within the Republican Party can be found, can be glanced by taking a long look in the mirror. It's us. We're the problem. Specifically because we don't really seem to know what we want. We don't. You know, I, I have conversations, particularly at in this moment in time, this moment in history where we find ourselves in the Trump era. It seems as though any given conservative, self-identifying conservative, or any given Republican that I find myself in a conversation with, I can get, if I talk to 50 different people who fit that bill, I'm going to get 50 different sets of priorities, 50 different ideas. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The logical perspectives, 50 diff- different strategies that simply must be executed, right, in order to do whatever. There's no cohesion, there's no coherence, there's no central core goal or methodology in place. And I think the reason why, fundamentally, and this will bear out as we go through the 538 piece, is because we don't really know, we don't have a governing philosophy. All we have at this point, and and I think Trump and, and Trump's movement is the ultimate manifestation of this. What we have is an aversion to the status quo. We have an aversion to government as such. In, in a certain way, we're almost anarchists. We're not, right? But to a certain degree, in the sense that we're against this, that, and the other thing. But we can't point to a whole lot that we're for. We certainly can't point to a articulatable, explainable, Objective. Good morning, Justice and Drew. Sam's top five boat floater starting at 620. Plus, we'll talk to Fox News host Ebony Williams about her new book, Pretty Powerful, Appearance, Substance, and Success. Is that a book about me? No, it's about Sam. Justice and Drew, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. I think what makes Ron Swanson such a compelling and funny character on Parks and Rec is the irony, right? The the comic tension and dramatic tension between the fact that he's a raging libertarian who does not believe in government as such and yet has a government job, right? It's it's in that context that both the drama and the humor manifests that that there's this sort of irreconcilable tension between what he believes and what he does for a living. In a similar sense, we as conservatives, and certainly the, the Republican Party, the current manifestation of it, seem to have this tension between, on the one hand, being against so much that government does for good cause. Don't get me wrong, right? There's, there's absolutely tons of things, a long litany of aggressions, of encroachments, 
of impositions that government is guilty of and that we ought to end or certainly reduce. That said, once we've done all that, once we've carved away the excess rock, a sculpture must remain that actually looks like what government is supposed to be. And unfortunately, it seems as though increasingly we as conservatives and certainly as the Republican Party don't seem to have a good sense of what that sculpture looks like. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com, and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream the program. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can catch up with the podcast by doing a search for Closing Argument right there in your iHeartRadio app. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omlin producing the show, taking those calls. From 538.com, written by a Julia Azari, the headline is Why Republicans Can't Govern. She writes, You might think that securing the White House, Senate, House of Representatives, and a majority of seats on the Supreme Court would enable a party to practically dictate laws and policy. But so far... Unified government hasn't worked out too well for Republicans. The GOP has controlled both houses of Congress and the presidency since January, but has no major legislative accomplishments to show for it. President Trump finally managed to close a big deal last week to stave off a government shutdown and Treasury default for the next three months and secure hurricane disaster relief. And yet he cut the deal with Democrats against the wishes of GOP leaders. One thing the Republicans have done, however, is demonstrate that controlling government isn't enough to govern. Since the U.S. system is designed to slow down and complicate attempts at change, even parties in control of the whole government have to learn how to navigate it. What makes that so hard? There are several things that a majority party needs in order to convert political victories into legislative ones, and the GOP doesn't have them. Heading number one, a prioritized agenda. This one seems pretty obvious, but can be deceptively difficult. Research shows that agenda control is a key source of power for the majority party in Congress. For a party to effectively implement an agenda, it has to agree on what that agenda is and how that agenda should be prioritized. The first part isn't a given. Republicans largely support lower taxes, for instance, but As the recent health care debate showed, they are less unified on health care policy. Even when there's agreement on the issues, parties must also decide on which ones to focus. Democrats, for example, controlled the White House, Senate, and House in the post-New Deal era, though most of Harry Trump's presidency, or through most of Harry Truman's presidency, sorry about that, and 1961 uh, to 1969 under John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, and again from 1977 to 1981 when Jimmy Carter was in office. During this time, they had to decide what policy goals to prioritize. Economic reforms, health care coverage, arts and education, rural development, urban revitalization, civil rights. Some leaders, like Johnson, were able to tie many domestic issues together, while others, like Carter, came off as unfocused. Health care reform wasn't prioritized, and it remained on the Democratic to-do list all the way to the presidencies of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Modern Republicans face an additional problem. Much of the party's stated governing ideology rests on the premise that government is the problem, which makes it difficult to develop a coherent agenda for determining what the government should be doing. That's where I want to pause and focus for a little bit. What did Ronald Reagan mean when he said government is the problem? 
government is the problem. Was was that a condemnation of government as such? I think by examining one what Reagan did and two what he actually advocated for in terms of policy, it's pretty clear that he was not an anarchist, right? He believed that a government of some type should exist. Further, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of Republicans agree with him, right? That just just that idea alone, forget about whittling it down to what government should do. Let's just start with the premise that government should exist at some level. Can we agree on that? Not all of us can, but the overwhelming majority of us do, right? Certainly as a Republican party that is vying for the job of being Ron Swanson, being the guy who has the government job, which is what a public office is, the, the prerequisite to that is conceding the institution itself. It exists. And we believe that there is something proper that it ought to do. So that's the first thing we have to agree on. Second is what? What is it supposed to do? What is government for? Now, I would argue that, and, and, you know, you can go back and you can examine the things that Ronald Reagan said uh, all the way back to his speech for Barry Goldwater, and I believe it was 1964, or perhaps 1960, regardless. Reagan had a strong sense of what government was supposed to do, and it was, in essence, what we advocate for on this program, to secure the condition of liberty to protect individuals from the initiation of force from both their neighbors domestically and foreign aggressors, right? To establish and maintain the rule of law for the purpose of creating a a just and orderly society in which people are free to pursue their happiness. That is what government is for, right? Now, when you say it that way, when you phrase it like that, it sounds rather high-minded and philosophical, But you can translate that idea into specific manifestations, right? You can, and that's, and that's what political parties and political campaigns and candidates and certainly actual legislators are for. And that's what I would call the, you know, if we want to use the analogy of uh, a car or a motor vehicle, that's the essential ingredient that's missing, the transmission. We've got an engine, right? We got fuel. We we got all kinds of energy with which to rev up a machine. But what we lack, what we lack is transmission, the ability to transmit all of that into legislation, into policy that actually has the effect of advancing us toward our goal of a government that fulfills and accomplishes that role of securing the condition of liberty. And this is a problem. Clearly as manifest in the the results that we're seeing today in terms of a Congress, you know, focusing on the federal level, a Congress that has been unable to do anything on health care is probably going to be unable to do anything on tax reform because the approach is precisely the same as it was to health care. You know, the president basically saying, you guys do it. And with no direction and no, no vision, no sense of what it is, just get it done. Right. Uh, a debt ceiling that has been a, a can that's been kicked down the road three months and that presents an electoral problem for the Republicans and that they have no plan for how they're they're going to solve that problem, right? 
this is this is an issue because you know what it, the problem that it creates politically let me let me try to translate this for my my operative friends out there right the those who are listening who who are either candidates or incumbents or lobbyists or party officers or, or whatever the case may be because i know what you guys primarily care about is elections right getting elected keeping and maintaining majorities securing majorities in the first place the reason this is a problem for you even if you don't really care about any of that ideological stuff you know which you know we could talk about it some other time but even if you don't really care about all the ideology even if you don't really share in your heart the goal of achieving this vision for what government ought to be assuming you care about electoral victories which i know you do the problem with having this disconnect, not having the transmission that actually translates the ideas into policy, is that you you are inevitably going to annoy and disappoint your voters. And that's what's happened. That's what we're looking at. The, the one thing which ties the Trump movement together, I think more than anything else, is disgust with the status quo. You know, you hear it over this very air, the overwhelming majority of the day, reference to the establishment, the establishment. And I talk about the establishment too, right? But m- most of the time when you hear that word evoked, establishment, what people are talking about is what they have known for however many years, however many decades, however many cycles. And that is, you know, going back to George W. Bush, cycle after cycle after cycle, and even before that, Cycle after cycle after cycle of this is what we're going to do if you give us power. Okay, here's the power. Followed by, eh, we're, we're not really going to do that. <laughs> gotcha. And people are sick of the gotchas. They're sick of being told this is how we're going to govern or these are the things generally that we're going to accomplish if you give us power. And then Republicans getting that power and not doing anything with it. Certainly not doing, or, you know, they do things. They do things like Medicare Part D, right? They do things like hike up the debt. They do things like spend more money, right? All the things that they were elected to stop. All the things that they were elected to have some alternative to. And so unless we change the course, unless the party actually finds a way to craft and install that transmission, which actually gives us policy that comports with the promises and the ideology and the ideas of how government ought to be operating, we're going to have long-term electoral issues with this party, which is a difficult thing to accept in the context of, yeah, but we just won an election. Look at us, and the Democrats are so horrible, and they're setting themselves up to lose again in 2018. All true. But forgive me if my... Um, For the one place everyone is listening, AMFM Radio. You're listening to Closing Argument with Walter Hudson. Tomorrow morning, Fox News host Ebony Williams on her new book, Pretty Powerful, joins the show at 8.35. Justice and Drew, 6 to 9, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. Been walking through this piece at 538.com. The headline, Why Republicans Can't Govern... It breaks down the the reasons why the obstacles that the Republicans have faced in translating or transmitting their ideas, which seem to be rather vague far too often and certainly uh, are not uniformly accepted amongst all parties concerned, into actual policy. 
you know, which is kind of a problem. You know, when you're when you're asking for, let's put it in terms of a job interview, right? Let's say you're you're interviewing to be a Zamboni driver at a hockey rink, right? And you go in and you sit down with your boss, your would-be boss, and they're asking you, you know, the typical questions. And at some point along the line, you let out, you blurt out, I hate hockey. I hate hockey. I don't think people ought to play it. I don't like the fact that this hockey arena exists, and I'm fundamentally against the sport. But I'd like a job running your Zamboni in your hockey arena. Like, chances are your name, your resume is going to go to the bottom of the list, certainly towards the bottom of the list. In a certain sense, as conservatives, if we don't articulate what it is that we actually want to do with government and all people hear us say is we don't like it, we, we think it we think it needs to go away to an undefined extent, we're not presenting them with a value proposition that they can actually enthusiastically vote for. That is a problem that we need to solve. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5. FM, let's go to the phones. Jeremy and Anoka, thanks for holding, and welcome to the program. Hey, uh, great topic. It's a little bit deeper than I'm used to, but uh, I'll kind of sum it up, and I'm glad you brought the Zamboni example. I remember the movie Jerry Maguire, and Jerry Maguire's um, mission statement. He was so proud of it, and he, he, he put, you know, he worked on it all night, just this, this revelation-type thing. And then he got fired, and his, his protege... He asked his protege, why, why? And he said, Jerry, you said fewer clients. And he, he didn't want, he wanted, you know what I mean? He, he liked the job. He believed in it, but he didn't want it. He didn't, he didn't think that they should have more clients. And that was a fundamental problem with a sports agency, right. you know? And that's like, it's like with the Zamboni thing with, hey, I want to drive the Zamboni, but God, I hate hockey. Now, I okay. Think, so, so I, I think I think that's one of the main things. But so translating that into you know using that as an analogy for government, are you suggesting that if if the Republican value proposition is we need less government, that that's somehow not a, a good selling point? No, I think with the Republicans, I think that there are quote unquote Republican ideals, um, fewer and less taxes a robust and stronger military, things like that, um, but translating them without incorporating more government mm-hmm. can, can be challenging. And, and the other thing, too, um, I, I have um, some really staunch old, older Republican uh, relatives and friends, and when I talk to them, they have a laundry list of issues that they don't like. I don't like this. I don't like that. Right. And then when right. I say, well, well, how, 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 how would you go about changing it? Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of stumble and, and, you know, and they're not politicians or, you know, right. policymakers right. or anything like that. And I think that's what happens. I, I feel that, I feel that the, 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 the clearest path for the future of Republican government is to find the strongest and most um, the most serious subjects that are at their core Republican mm-hmm. and focus on those and then just say, you know what? These other things that aren't as big a deal, you know, that, that aren't as important, we're just going to let 
The states figure them out on their own. Yeah. And I, I, and I, I think that's what has to happen versus the, the Democrat way is there needs to be some sort of huge umbrella, you know, over the entire country that will, you know, protect this and protect that. Well, I, 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 I think nourish that... this and nourish that. I think that part of the problem, because I don't disagree with you at all, but I think part of the problem in terms of selling what you're saying is that when you, when you say, for instance, well, we're going to we're going to take this whole this category of problems and we're just going to say the states can deal with it. What that's perceived as is kind of a cop out, like you're not going to come up with a solution to the problem. I think what we need to do and, you know, using a general we is to to find a way to both both literally and rhetorically phrase it and package it in such a way that it's this is what we're going to do not these are the things we're not going to do or these are the, the areas we're not going to address but here's what we're going to do and then and then sell it as in that context of what we're going to do here's how here's some ways that you can potentially solve these problems at, at other levels of government i appreciate right. your call jeremy we're we are no going to take another call thanks let's go to mike in farmington welcome to the program yeah thanks for taking my call walter yeah I'm thought about this. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's off and on for some time. You know, and I actually left the Republican Party a long time ago. But the Republicans just have such a poor brand. You know, the one thing that really stood out for me is all the criticism of Obamacare. But yet you guys don't have option A, B, and C ready to go. <laughs> right. There's just no leadership there yeah and i think they're content just to play it's kind of like the uh the heel and wrestling you know he's gonna always get beat but hey he's gonna get a paycheck mm-hmm. after the match and they- just mace michaels on twin cities news talk am eleven thirty. currently we're at 70 degrees this is twin cities news talk.com because you deserve the truth then you're entitled to slaves. Let me try that again. If your needs, the things that you need in order to live, in order to survive and thrive, if those are rights, things like health care, right, food, shelter, if your needs are rights, then you're claiming an entitlement to slaves. We're going to explore that here this hour on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com, and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream the program. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can catch up with the podcast by searching for Closing Argument right there in the iHeartRadio app, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omlin taking your calls, producing the show. Before we get into that provocative open, let's uh, catch up with Corey in Bloomington regarding uh, what we were talking about before. Corey, what's up? Did we lose you? Were you holding for too long? Okay. No, I was thinking of actually 
running, and then I was thinking of switching from Republican to an independent because the Republicans aren't actually doing anything that they said they're going to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they promised to replace and repeal for right. how many years? <laughs> Quite a few. At least eight. <laughs> as long as the bill existed. First it was just repeal, then it became repeal and replace. That was never defined. Then they got the chance to do something, and they couldn't. So yeah. that's where we find ourselves. Yeah, that's right. I couldn't believe out of all the McCain, out of all of them, he's been promising the repeal thing, and all of a sudden he goes and switches. That's like, oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, we we talked a lot last hour about the electoral motivations, the, the just the the pure political motivations behind a lot of what these legislative majorities, legislative caucuses and the parties do. But I think there's also, unfortunately, a lot of personal stuff that gets thrown in the mix as well. You get a lot of people who who refuse to work with others for personal reasons that have nothing whatsoever to do with policy or politics. And I think that might be, it might explain McCain's vote uh, when he came back from, you know, what was a dire circumstance having been hospitalized and diagnosed with cancer just to cast a vote to spite Donald Trump. Appreciate your call, Corey. All right, let's get into speaking of healthcare, the latest on that front from the Democrats, and specifically your Democratic senator here in Minnesota, Al Franken, that bastion of wisdom. Boy, I'll tell you what. From the Star Tribune, Minnesota's efforts to drive down premiums for coverage sold on the state health insurance exchange could come undone by the end of the month unless the federal government acts. After seven years of partisan wrangling over Obamacare, U.S. senators worked Tuesday to hammer out a bipartisan fix they hope could stabilize state insurance exchanges before millions of Americans are hit with rate hikes. The CEO of Minsure, Minnesota's exchange, told a Senate panel Tuesday that the state may have mere days left to avoid the kind of hikes that state lawmakers took expensive steps to avoid earlier this year. Even as federal lawmakers consider short-term repairs to the Affordable Care Act, a growing number of Democrats, including Senator Al Franken, are looking more long-term. The Minnesota Democrat announced Tuesday that he has signed on as a co-sponsor of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All single-payer health care plan, calling health care a right for all Americans. A couple things here. First of all, I want to note, I want to just go back and remind you that, you know, I've been saying since it became clear that Republicans were not going to be able to do anything on health care, and particularly not just because they couldn't, but the context in which they couldn't, the things that they were saying, the rhetoric that was being employed by elected Republicans, things along the lines of, and, you know, up to and including President Donald Trump, things, things like, you know, people deserve to be taken care of, right? We're going to take care of people. That's something that Trump said. We're going to take care of people. We're going to make sure that we have something that's fair. You know, he criticized the plan that the House passed as being mean, too mean, and not generous enough. Those were his words. Not generous enough. Wow. In that context, you have ceded 
the moral argument for single-payer health care, and that is the trajectory we're headed to. I, I firmly believe that the reason why, one of the reasons why, one of the primary reasons why Al Franken is taking this step is because he recognizes, you know, he's just smart enough to recognize that rhetorically and culturally, the window is now open. You know, that Overton window that Glenn Beck used to talk about has shifted to the point where single payer is attainable as a political goal. And the reason why is that second thing he cites, the first thing he says, which is that health care is a right for all Americans. This is the idea upon which in a campaign for single payer will be based and the, the idea upon which it will be successfully obtained. I'm calling it right now. We're going to single payer. Because there's nobody in the there's nobody fighting against it. Right? There's a minority. There's the Freedom Caucus, right? A handful of guys who are saying, no, we probably shouldn't do that. And even they are not arguing against it in in the strongest possible terms, in the strongest possible moral terms. And that's what I've spent a little bit of time reflecting on here. The morality of this issue. I open the hour by saying, if your needs are rights, then you're entitled to slaves. That is not an analogy. That is not a comparison. That is not a, a provocative piece of rhetoric meant to activate you. That is an identification. If you believe that your need entitles you to have it fulfilled, if you believe you have a right to health care, then you are a slaver. You believe in enslaving people. Now, there's a very simple reason for this. Products and services like health care cannot exist absent production. And production is something that happens exclusively through the effort of human beings. And if you're not the one employing the effort or obtaining it in trade, then somebody else is. And if what your claim, if your claim is, I'm entitled to that, I'm entitled to that product, I'm entitled to that service, I get to have it, it is my right. If that's your claim, the unspoken corollary to that is, other people must produce it for me. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about single-payer health care. And it is what we're talking about when we talk about Obamacare as such. And it is what we were talking about when we were talking about the Republican, quote-unquote Republican plan to sort of repeal, not really, and replace Obamacare. All of these instances were, were various degrees of the same idea, which is that we're going to take care of you. We. Who do they? Who we mean by we? You know, I posted this. This notion on uh, social media earlier today. I just simply posted, if your needs are rights, then you're entitled to slaves. And it, of course, attracted the attention of at least one of my left-leaning friends, Abu Amara, a friend of the show. He, he made a couple of interesting comparisons. And finally, he hit me with what I firmly believe he felt was the silver bullet, right? He says, I have a constitutional right to education. Does that make teachers slaves? That's his question. Now, this this provokes a couple of interesting retorts, right? On the one hand, 
it's interesting to me that the focus is on the teachers. Because my answer would be, no, of course, the teachers aren't slaves. They're voluntarily engaging in a trade for which they're receiving agreed-upon compensation. They're free to quit at any time. But the taxpayers, the taxpayers are the slaves in this equation, right? Because they don't have a choice. They must pay. They are compelled under the force of law to provide, to produce the good with which the service is made possible. So it's the taxpayers who are the slaves in this equation. The other aspect of this is a constitutional right. Abu is 100% correct. It is in the state constitution of Minnesota that you have a right to a public education, right? What this demonstrates is that there is a difference between a quote-unquote constitutional right and an objective moral right. You know, I think it was, what was it, FDR who came up with his second bill of rights, positive rights, you know, a freedom from want, you know, a right to a job, a right to housing, a right to food, all these, all these things which enshrine, to one degree or another, the institution of slavery, the idea that you are entitled to the product of somebody else's labor, right? Now, if he had been successful, if FDR had been successful in actually passing and getting ratified his second bill of rights with all these positive socialist entitlements, that would those would have been, quote, constitutional rights, unquote, but that not, wouldn't have made them morally correct. That wouldn't have made them morally justified. That's a key difference, right? And this Abu's response circumvents my entire claim. The important aspect here is that if you are going to say, I have a right to something which someone else must produce, you're advocating for slavery. Now, that, that puts us in the uncomfortable position. The reason why Abu thinks this is a silver bullet is because he's thinking, oh, now Walter's on the record saying that, edu- that the public education system is an institution of slavery. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable being on the record saying that because it's true. It's true, right? Anything that requires somebody else to pay for the thing that you, quote, need is, to one degree or another, a form of slavery. Now, does that mean that we we can suffer nothing less than changing the Constitution and abolishing public education outright? Well, we, we have a practical context in which we have to operate, in which we have to work, right? The culture needs to change before our, our political structure can change. Until such time, recognizing the nature of these entitlements for what they are does something very important. It provides us restraint, moral restraint. You know, if if you look upon taxes as theft, one six six seven zero. Don't wait. Call eight hundred two nine one six six seven zero. Not available in North Dakota. You're listening to closing argument with Walter Hudson tomorrow morning. Fox News host Ebony Williams on her new book Pretty Powerful joins the show at eight thirty five. Justice and Drew six to nine. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty and one zero three five FM. Last hour, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the need for the conservative movement and the Republican Party in particular to have a value proposition and to be able to transmit these ideas that we talk about into policy. And so how do I do that with what I just talked about over the past you know, 15 minutes, right? This, this concept of 
a right to a product or service effectively being advocacy for slavery, right? You know, if, if you're going to say and maintain, as I do, that the notion of single-payer health care is the establishment of enslavement, you know, you're saying that somebody's need entitles them to the product of other people's labor. If you're going to say that, what, what are the implications of that idea to public policy? Because as it turns out, government is force, right? And everything that government does involves force. And in that light, taxation may properly be viewed as a form of theft. And so when's it okay to steal? Right? When's it okay to steal? Now, you may, from a libertarian perspective, you may properly answer never, right? And I, and I wouldn't argue with you. But we have this practical context that we live in, right? At some point, we have to, we have to bring our high-minded ideas down to the real world and ask ourselves, what is it that we're going to propose in the context of our political reality that's actually achievable and best affects our ideals in policy? And in that context, I think, I think it's a, it can be effective if we, we approach policy decisions with the sense that we're talking about force and that we're talking about theft to the degree that we're taxing people, right? So, you know, one of the things that's been said often by a variety of libertarian thinkers and commentators and activists is that... The, the question that you ought to ask when you're considering whether or not there ought to be a law for something is, am I willing to imprison somebody in a cage? Am I willing to put somebody in a cage like an animal for violating this proposed law, right? And potentially, I would take it a step further. Are we willing to kill somebody in an altercation with police that goes south because they violated this law? You go back to the Eric Gardner case a guy who literally died through a sequence of events that began with him selling loose cigarettes on the street of New York City. Was that worth his life? Should we have a law on the books that potentially can result in an escalation of force leading up to and including death simply to regulate something as innocuous and trivial as cigarettes? I would argue not. And when we approach policy decisions you know, with that in, with that mindset of what are we willing to kill for, what are we willing to put people in cages for, what are we willing to steal for, what it does is it creates it creates a mindset of restraint. There ought to be very few things that we're willing to to fit into that category. In that context, let's turn to what's happening in Minneapolis right now. From the Star Tribune, combating climate change, significant new spending on affordable housing, and public safety and voter outreach are the key priorities in Mayor Betsy Hodges' 2018 budget, the details of which she revealed Tuesday in a speech at City Hall. Standing at a podium alongside the full city council at noon, Hodges spoke for 45 minutes, laying out her priorities and the adjustment she plans to make to the city's $1.4 billion budget. She proposed raising the levy, the total amount of property tax the city collects, by 5.5%. Calling climate change the single greatest threat to our city and our planet, Hodges said it is up to cities like ours to lead both the fight against climate change and the work to adapt to it. 
She proposed spending $6 million for clean energy programs and lifting utility franchise fees by half a percent to raise more than $2 million to help pay for those initiatives. Minneapolis is going to have clean energy initiatives. Well, that, <laughs> that should lower the planet's temperature for sure. There isn't enough housing and not the right mix of housing in the right places to meet all the needs of a rapidly growing city that more and more people choose to live in, Hodges said. The budget includes $6.5 million for the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, $1 million for the two-year-old Family Housing Initiative, and $3.65 million aimed at preserving existing affordable units, supporting renters, supporting low-income home buyers, and creating long-term affordability in areas where displacement threatens long-term residents' abilities to stay in their neighborhoods. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Now, what I want to try to do here is is demonstrate something that's going to require it's going to require you to, to to pay attention to something. And that is the concept of a levy, what a levy is, and why it can be totally appropriate in a conservative Republican context to raise a levy, right? As pointed out here by the Star Tribune, a levy is a, it's a dollar amount. It's the total amount of money that a municipality is going to take in in the form of taxation, now, that is different from what you're used to considering at the state level or at the federal level where they typically talk about tax rates, right? We're going to have this rate on this tax bracket or whatever the case may be or this sales tax. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rate. You can have a scenario where a tax rate, a sales tax or an income tax rate remains the same and the total dollar amount of your revenue goes up year over year. In fact, that's very typical. And the reason why is you have growth in the economy. You ha- and you also have this thing called inflation, right? That is not accounted for in municipal budgets. Because municipalities don't tax according to rates. They don't tax your income. They don't tax you know your sales. Some of them do. But for the most part, they don't. They just say, this is the total amount of money that we're going to take and then they disperse that amongst the different residents and businesses you know, based upon another, a number of factors. And so when they say here that the, the levy is going to go up 5.5%, what they mean is the total dollar amount that she plans to take next year is going to go up 5.5% from that total dollar amount this year. doesn't necessarily mean that you, the individual Minneapolis resident, are going to be paying 5.5% more. You may. You may not, or you may pay more, depending on who you are and where you live and what you have and you know the, the value of your property, whatever the case may be. Now, if, if we go to the question of what is it that government ought to be doing, which is where I think we properly ought to start, then even in the, in the nirvana, the conservative nirvana, where your city government, you know, the, the Minneapolis city government in this case, is whittled down to just those core functions, policing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, keep it, keeping the sewer flowing, keeping the water on, 
what have you. Keeping the streets paved, the potholes filled. Even if it was whittled down just to those proper essential core functions, it would they would still need to increase the levy by some amount year over year. And the reason for that is this thing called inflation and the requisite increase in the cost of living. The same number of dollars do not cover, do not go the same distance year after year. And so in order to maintain what you have, you're going to have to increase the levy in order to maintain it. Otherwise, you're going to end up having to, to cut back whatever it is that you're providing. And again, if we're looking at the ideal where all you're doing is you know filling the potholes and keeping the sewer flowing, you start to cut things, then you're going to have potholes and a sewer that doesn't work, right? And that's unacceptable to most people. The problem here with Betsy Hodges is not that she's raising the levy or suggesting a 5.5% levy even. The problem is what she's trying to do with it. Combat climate change as a city in the middle of America by itself. One woman, one city against the planet. Engaged in affordable housing programs to the tune of $8 million. $24 million on top of that. You know, an insane amount of money. Way, far more than boat floaters starting at 620. Plus, we'll talk to Fox News host Ebony Williams about her new book, Pretty Powerful, Appearance, Substance, and Success. Is that a book about me? No, it's about Sam. Justice and Drew, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. So there's a little hidden gem of a story that I imagine hasn't gotten a lot of attention that uh, really demonstrates, I'm trying to think of an of a acceptable way to put this, how much trouble we're in, I'll just put it that way, how much trouble we're in as a country and how dire our situation is. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk.com and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream the program. We're here nine to 11 weeknights. You can catch up on the podcast, searching for Closing Argument right there in your iHeartRadio app. Hope you will. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omlin taking those calls from the Star Tribune. Republican lawmakers in 19 states are trying to develop a plan in Arizona this week for carrying out a growing but unlikely national effort to amend the Constitution to require a balanced U.S. budget a long-held goal of conservatives who believe out-of-control spending is harming the nation. Now, let's just let's just reflect on some of the language here just for a second. A national effort that is growing but unlikely to require a balanced U.S. budget. Just to clarify, I mean, it should go without saying, and I'm sure this audience knows, but just to make it explicit, what we mean by a balanced budget. Look, ev- even if this happened, even if there was a constitutional requirement to balance the budget, that would do nothing to address the debt. Nothing. It would eliminate deficits, theoretically. I'm sure there's some clever accounting you could do to, to work your way around that and still call it balanced, even though you're still you know running in the red. But be that as it may, effectively, you would still have a problem, right? Because you'd still have this debt that is not getting paid. But even so, even though this this is not ultimately the solution to the long-term fiscal problem, even this Band-Aid, even this treading of water is deemed unlikely. 
unlikely. I also like the fact that here in the reporting, it says that the that a balanced budget amendment is a long-held goal of conservatives who believe out-of-control spending is harming the nation. Believe. Like one believes in Santa Claus. Like one believes in the Tooth Fairy, right? Believe that out-of-control spending is harming the nation. Yeah, it's just an opinion. There's no objective analysis that one could engage in to determine whether or not that's actually true. Certainly not if their profession is journalist. Continuing at the Star Tribune. The plan is to add an amendment to the Constitution through a convention, a long-shot effort that has never been successfully done. All 27 amendments that have been adopted were proposed by Congress. A balanced budget amendment is a core goal of conservative Republicans who have gained control of an increasing number of state legislatures in recent years, now holding both chambers in 32 states. Backers include groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council, and the Koch brothers backed Americans for Prosperity. The effort also comes against the backdrop of deep turmoil in Washington over debt spending. Top congressional Democrats last week cut a deal with President Donald Trump to increase the federal debt limit, avoiding for now a fight that commonly causes divisions and threats of a government shutdown. The goal of amendment backers is to eliminate the federal deficit and drive down the national debt, which is approaching $20 trillion. The current federal budget includes spending of about $4 trillion and has a shortfall of nearly $700 billion, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Now, I'm unclear, and, and perhaps we would need to get our constitutional scholar, Dave Benner, in here to explain it to us. I'm unclear of functionally how this constitutional convention would work, what's required, or and and how we're we the process would circumvent the political problem which keeps Congress from addressing this issue. Because presumably, I think it's safe to say that the reason Congress isn't doing anything to address the deficit or the debt is because they don't want to have to deal with the electoral problem of telling people that they can't have the things that they want, right? Of cutting things, specifically cutting what you would have to cut in order to make a meaningful difference, entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, right? The big things, Obamacare, a actual repeal of Obamacare and what have you. Cuts to military spending, right? I mean, there's all kinds of sacred cows, that would have to be trotted out to the slaughterhouse in order to make this a reality. And I'm not sure how the constitutional convention process pursued through state legislatures circumvents that political reality, but be that as it may, it's interesting to contemplate the hypothetical where somehow, some way, this got ratified, and we did in fact have this constitutional requirement that the federal budget be balanced, because we would immediately have a huge, huge political problem for everybody who is elected to office at the federal level. And that is, how do you do it? What do you cut? And by how much? Because you'd have to. You'd have to. That's what the effect of this would be. It would force the Congress to cut the budget in order to eliminate the deficit. And I, I don't see a way to do that without addressing entitlements. And and then are they going to be able to, is that going to provide the, is the idea that it's going to provide the political cover that elected Congress people need in order to effectively do that? 
Or is it going to generate some sort of anti-fostile revolution from the progressives among us that don't you dare touch you know, the entitlement to which uh, the need to which I have a right? You know, we've got Al Franken talking about how health care is a is a right to which we're all entitled and signing on to the the Medicare for all bill forwarded by Bernie Sanders. That ain't going to happen if we have a budget balance amendment. Won't be possible. Won't be physically, financially possible. So it'd be interesting to see how this all plays out. I, you know, I unfortunately I tend to agree with the the presumption in the Star Tribune here, which is that a balanced budget amendment and even the Constitutional Convention required to start the process of ratifying it are unlikely to move forward. Also from the Star Tribune, the mediator who will attempt to broker an end to months-long political and legal battle between Governor Mark Dayton and Republican legislative leaders is a retired Hennepin County judge with a long track record of sorting out high-stakes disputes. Dayton and lawmakers on Tuesday jointly selected Rick Solom, a former trial lawyer and judge who has long focused on mediation, after the Minnesota Supreme Court's recent order that the two sides resolve their dispute outside of a courtroom. Solom is now charged with breaking an impasse that threatens to shut down the state house and Senate after Dayton line-item vetoed their funding, initiating a constitutional quandary about the limits of the governor and legislature's power. Speaking to reporters on Tuesday, Dayton said he's hopeful Solom's previous mediation experience on controversial issues with very divided parties, ranging from the dispute over the land value of the site of the new Minnesota Twins ballpark to settlements in the Ponzi scheme of former Wyzetta businessman Tom Peters will help in the stalemate. I think his skill and expertise, which both the legislature and I recognize by putting him at the top of our list of recommendations, says he's very skilled at this, very experienced with this, Dayton said. I'm hopeful that the skill will enable us to succeed at reaching a resolution. And uh, I'm trying to find where it talks about, oh, here we go. The Senate Majority Leader Paul Kazelka, Republican from Nishwa, said in a statement Tuesday that this year's legislative session was one of the most productive in recent history and that few lawmakers are eager to delve back into the work they completed months ago. I've talked to members of the legislature, and they're not interested in revisiting bills that were bipartisan, that the governor agreed to, and that are now law. So all of this, hopefully, I mean, it's it, they don't make it clear in how they report it here at the Star Tribune, but based upon the interview that we had with Harry Niska, a candidate for attorney general, seeking the Republican endorsement, in the immediate aftermath of the Minnesota Supreme Court's decision that they were going to order mediation for the legislature and the governor in this matter before ruling further, it sounds very much like if it comes back to the court, the court's going to rule against the governor. He doesn't seem to be aware of that, but that's what the, if you actually read the judgment and, and listen to any objective analysis, that's what seems to For what's ahead. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. You're listening to Closing Argument with Walter Hudson. Tomorrow morning, Fox News host Ebony Williams on her new book, Pretty Powerful, joins the show at 835. Justice and Drew, 6 to 9, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. Liberty Hour on Twitter points out that a balanced budget amendment could also trigger massive tax increases, not just spending cuts. And that is a solid point. You know, I said that if somehow, some way, we had the scenario whereby through a constitutional convention, the American people imposed a balanced budget amendment constitutionally upon Congress, that that would necessitate 
huge cuts in spending, uh, most notably to entitlements, because that you got to take the money from somewhere and you got to go where the money's at, and that's where the money's at, in order to balance that budget. Now, of course, that neglects to recognize the other way in which you can balance it, and that's to quote unquote increase revenue, right, by increasing taxes. Now, I think that even if you attempted that. In the long term, you would still find yourself needing to cut spending because, you know, if you take a look at that Laffer curve, the idea that there there's a certain point past which the amount of revenue you take in under increased tax rates is actually going to go down because, you know, people are gonna, people are going to stop making it, right? That you can only tax so much in order to solve the problem, in order to actually balance the budget. At some point, and I think that point would arrive very soon after an amendment like this was ratified, you're going to reach the point where you have to take a look at spending. You have to. And uh, I think we would find that bearing out over time. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. I also noticed, uh, and I've, I've gotten a, a couple of texts and seen uh, the headlines on social media, that now that Congress has officially raise the debt ceiling for the next three months, suddenly, magically, we we spiked way above $20 trillion in debt. There were all kinds of accounting tricks that were in play that were keeping us officially under the debt ceiling, but we were actually above it. So your government was lying to you. Surprise, but not surprised. There you go. I haven't gotten to the big news of the day as of yet. I'm about to hit it right now. J.J. Abrams confirmed by Disney to write and direct the next episode of Star Wars after uh, the next one here, The Last Jedi. J.J. Abrams, who launched the new era of Star Wars with The Force Awakens in 2015, is returning to complete the sequel trilogy as a writer and director of Star Wars Episode Nine. Now, I don't have much to say about this other than... Ugh, I'm not happy. Look, I liked The Force Awakens. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I have, you know, I, I like to think that I have a pretty realistic sense of the prequels. You know, I don't hate them. I don't love them. I, I appreciate them for what they were. You know, they offered, certainly offered some value. Force Awakens was better than the prequels, but it had a lot of problems. It had a lot of flaws. And I think part of those flaws, a huge part of those flaws, came from the fact that it was directed by J.J. Abrams, who tends to skip over anything that's complex and and tries to obscure nuance with editing and action, which, you know, unfortunately is par for the course in today's Hollywood, but uh, not something I want to see in my favorite franchise. So I hear good things about Ryan Johnson and what he's doing with uh, The Last Jedi. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that in December. I'm not terribly excited that J.J. Abrams is going to be closing this thing out. I was looking forward to, you know, they lost their director, uh, I want to say Colin Trevorrow, who was the guy who directed Jurassic World. For unknown reasons, they dropped him, and they were taking a look at, reportedly, a, a number of other names, all of which have, would, would have been ahead on my list of J.J. Abrams. The thing that has just turned me off about Star Wars, like, I like Star Wars. I saw the first episode one in theaters when I was like nine years old and that thing was the gospel. Right. Like I, I grew up loving star Wars, but it's just all designed to sell. Sure. That's all it is now. Sure. Well, and nothing, nothing demonstrates that more. I think than BB eight, the wholly unnecessary 
basically, we got to have a droid that isn't already on kids' shelves, right? That they have to, a new design that they have to go out and buy. You know, and, and yeah, I mean, th- there's no doubt that merchandising plays. Wait, I don't have a problem with merchandising, right? I'm a capitalist as much as the next guy. But when the merchandising takes prominence over the story mm-hmm. and over the characters, you have a problem. And I think to some degree, not to a debilitating degree, but to some degree, that's the case with the Disneyfication of Star Wars. Still, you know, overall, I'm enjoying the franchise. So, you know, here's hoping that J.J. is hearing fans' voices and acts accordingly. Because he's not, it's not like he's a bad director. It's not like he's not capable of doing good stuff. I, his film Super 8, I really enjoyed. Uh, I never got into Lost, and I'm kind of glad I didn't based upon what I know of how it ended and how disappointing that was. But uh, hopefully he'll do, he'll do a good job. We'll cram in one more story here before we go tonight. This from the Star Tribune. A young man known on the streets as D's Blood was leaning over his best friend's bullet-pierced body sobbing when his cell phone rang with a call from a fellow gang member in prison. Somebody going to go to sleep tonight, bro, he allegedly told the caller in May of 2016 using slang for a revenge killing. Somebody got to feel how I feel, bro. Minutes later, his phone went off again, and another inmate urging him to avenge the death of their friend, Derek Rogers. Police believe he took that advice to heart. In fact, they've linked the 25-year-old to a series of killings and shootings, including a a slaying that may have precipitated Rogers' death last spring, according to court filings based on intercepted jailhouse phone conversations and information from confidential informants. But he hasn't been charged with any of them. I, I want to make one point on this article, and it's not the one that you probably imagine, and that is this. This revenge killing, killing you know, the mafia, gangs, this idea of in order to in exact... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.